0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape
1: to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, September 16th, 2015, and this is your host Steven Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey everybody. Cara Santa Maria. Oh, hey there. And Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Jay is still out because he has a newborn, as you learned last week on the show. Wow. Olivia, who's a cutie pie. Hi, Olivia. I love, <laughs> I love that she's named after the main
2: characters on Fringe.
1: No, she's named after the the pig on the, the children's book, Olivia. No. Oh, that too. Awesome. Did you guys see the picture of the rock UFO from Russia? <laughs> I
2: didn't oh, see that man. one. The rock. You, UFO. Was it rocky?
1: This is the level to which the UFO community has sunk, if you will. Um, not that they were like ever stone. high. Yeah, so, they've, Russian uh, paranormal investigators, established paranormal investigators, apparently, found a saucer shaped rock. Now, of course, because it's saucer shaped, it must be a UFO, despite be- the fact that it's a rock. <laughs> not only is it a rock, it's clearly the same material as all the surrounding rock. You know what I mean?
3: Very clever, very clever. It's not clever. out of
1: place or anything.
3: They were able to land their ship exactly in the same spot that Good this camouflage rock techniques. is indigenous in our Camouflage, yeah. It must have been a petrified
1: world. UFO, yeah. I guess. Mm-hmm. There's a obvious geological explanation. The this area where it was found uh has been underwater in the past and this is what water does to rocks over time. The waves it it out. eroded the rock and smooth it out. And it's kind of, you know, it has a smooth dome-like shape on the top. Uh, of course, the, the picture they show on the news item shows it from the most advantageous angle, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then they do show a picture of it from farther away where they're hoisting it out of the, lo- the location where they found it. And then you can see that it's all misshapen on the bottom. It's just a freaking rock, you know. <laughs> it's that the top was smoothed over or just happened to have a saucer shape. And that, that actual shape of rock is not uncommon in these locations where, you know, they were underwater for a long time.
3: All right. But unfortunately, this will cement them a spot on uh, some reality television show, unfortunately. Yeah, no because, pun intended. Yeah.
4: Cement. Yeah, I love it. I love how they, they pick and choose when to actually use science, too. Yeah. Like It says in, in a translated portion, its age is about one million years. Examinations will continue work on the ground will be resumed. I love that if they actually do any sort of dating on this to say, oh, it's one million years old, it must be from an ancient alien civilization.
3: Where are their white lab coats? I mean, that's really really the only (laughs) thing missing, you know. If you have all the trappings of science, you can call yourself a scientist no matter what.
1: We should have just saved this for the stupidest thing of the week, because this is it.
3: (laughs) (laughs) We'll do that. It gets my vote.
1: Stupidest thing of the week, we'll do it at the top of the show. All right. (laughs) All right. All right, well, Bob... Tell us about this week's Forgotten superhero of Science. For this week's Forgotten Superheroes of
2: Science, Hedy Lamarr is remembered as a famous actress, but not many people know she also independently invented spread-spectrum technology that is used not only by the military, but by many of today's modern digital conveniences – now, Lamar, we've probably all—many of us have probably heard of her. I certainly recognize the name. Um, she was in about thirty films between the nineteen thirties and nineteen fifties. She starred with such luminaries as Clark Gable, Spencer Tracy, Lana Turner, Judy Garland.
1: Did she ever star with Cary Granite? <laughs> <laughs> Cary Grant. Um, it's a Flintstones reference. First, <laughs> yes, we haven't done that in quite a while. Cary oh, Grant. So- <laughs>
2: So during <laughs> during her first marriage, she fell in love with applied science. When her husband Friedrich Mandel, Mandel, an um, an Austrian military arms merchant who actually sold munitions to Mussolini, he would bring her to uh, to meetings to confer with scientists about military technology, and she just fell in love with it. Now later on. Uh, during her acting career and when it would k- it kind of bored her because she felt like she really wasn't being challenged in, in her acting, uh, she would invent things like, for example, uh, an improved traffic light was one thing that, that she invented. So when the World War II came around, she was asked to contribute by selling war bonds and she did that and she did it very well, but she wanted to do more. Uh, for example, she, w- she wanted to use her interest in science to help defeat the Nazis. And when, uh, when Axis torpedoes started sinking passenger liners, she, she's, uh, claims to have said, I've got to invent something that will put a stop to that. Did she? That did not specifically yeah. that, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but that, that, that inspired her to work with, uh, with composer uh, George Antheil, uh, to counter the jamming of Allied torpedoes. Um, by the because they would broadcast in- interference using the same frequency that's used to control the torpedo, and that it would just kind of like go off on its own. It wouldn't do what it was supposed to do. So by continually changing the frequency to one of the uh, the other eighty seven or so different frequencies that were available, it would be uh, fairly impossible to jam unless you had the specific sequence that was being used. So you knew what frequency to switch to and when. So they patented this frequency hopping idea, as as it's called, in 1942, but the US Navy opposed it. Apparently, they thought that it was impractical. But of course, some people believe that it was also because the inventors were entertainers. I mean, what, what contribution could entertainers make? to something like that.
4: Let's not forget entertainers with vaginas.
2: Yeah, well, one of them did. I'm not sure what uh, George had, but um, I would guess probably not. But, but the idea was resurrected in the 1950s with the advent of the transistor, and the Navy started using her idea. They even specifically cited Lamar's patent as the basis for their new technology, even though other scientists – um, had developed similar ideas even before Lamar. She, she was not the first one to come up with this idea, but her, I, her, her idea, her independent idea or invention. Definitely had had an impact, especially if the Navy based their technology on on her patent. So her idea was a powerful one that eventually inspired modern spread spectrum technology used in today that in your cell phone, GPS, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi network connections, etc. It's amazing uh, what what you can apply this to. So Lamar and Anthea's uh, contributions were recognized, but decades later. Uh, when they were inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame in 2014. And, uh, Hedy Lamar was also the first female to be given the Bulby Nass Spirit of Achievement Bronze Award, which is given to inventors who have made a lasting contribution to society through science, business, and, and the arts. So, interesting. Um, all the more interesting considering that she was mainly known as a very famous actress. Uh, it's just pretty cool to think that she uh, was so scientifically minded, especially at that time in history, and made uh, such an interesting contribution. So, remember Hedy Lamar. Mention her to your friends, perhaps when discussing Gaussian frequency shift keying modulation. You know, if it comes up.
1: She was also married six times, six husbands.
3: Wow, That's like Elizabeth Taylor territory. Yeah,
1: I know. She was born, her first name was Hedwig. Hedwig Eva yeah. Maria Kiesler, Which I thought was funny. I thought yeah, that was Hedwig. Isn't Hedwig. that the owl from Harry Potter?
3: <laughs> yes. Yes. Isn't it?
4: Do yeah, we know right. if she was doing some of this work while she was working as an actress, or did she fully retire before she kind of moved over?
2: No, she was, she was doing movies until the 50s and this came up uh, in the 40s. So, she, like I said, she was, she, I guess they, they played or they actually listed some of her, her typical lines in her movies and they were pretty vapid. Um, and she, mm-hmm. and it said that she wasn't very, uh, challenged by, by any of the acting she was asked to do. So, to, you know, to prevent from being so bored all the time, she actually started inventing things. So I thought I that was really that. cool. Yeah.
1: So cool. All right. We got a few news items this week. I love talking about energy production. You guys into energy? It's uh, endlessly. Well, they kind of, kind of. Rely Energy's on cool. It. Yeah. yeah, it's. <laughs> I, I'm fascinated by all the different ways in which we can make energy and use energy and store it, etc. Well, uh, here's one we I don't think I don't know if we've talked about this specific technology before: solar hydrogen. We've obviously spoken many times before about solar solar voltaics, where you convert sunlight directly into electricity. We're always, you know, waiting for that next breakthrough. But uh in, in reality, so solar voltaic technology has been making incremental advances every year. And it actually is getting to the point, you know, depending on location, et cetera, that it's cost effective, you know, to throw solar panels on the roof of your house. But solar hydrogen is is a different approach. It's using solar energy not to directly create electricity but to split hydrogen from water. Um, this is sometimes called artificial photosynthesis because you're making, storing chemical energy from sunlight. As you know, hydrogen, while it's not a source of energy because there's no free hydri- hydrogen or no significant free hydrogen on the planet. So, you know, it's not like you can pull it out of the ground as hydrogen and burn it as fuel, but it is a way of storing energy. Uh, you have to put energy into something to get the hydrogen and then. Exactly. Yeah, then it, then the the energy is stored as hydrogen. then you, hydrogen, then you could burn that in a hydrogen fuel cell. You burn it back with oxygen and you get energy. And then it only creates water vapor as a byproduct. So it's a green, clean energy. So if you make hydrogen directly from sunlight, there's, that has one advantage over so, solar, uh, photovoltaics. And that is that you're, taking care of the storage problem, uh, right? So we are not quite there yet in terms of solar hydrogen being cost effective. But the the estimate is that we will need – the process will need to be about 15% efficient, meaning 15% of the energy in the sunlight that hits, you know, the, the – Solar hydrogen device gets converted into energy in hydrogen. for For the last seventeen years, the best device, uh, the most efficient device, was at twelve point four percent. Seventeen years. Seventeen That's years. Really yeah. bizarrely really like, plateaued a bizarre long
2: time. Wow.
1: Uh, however, a team from TU Ilmenau, the Helmholtz Zentrum Berlin, and California Institute of Technology as well as the Fraunhofer ISE announced a couple days ago that they finally broke through the 12.4% efficiency record and they got all the way to 14% efficiency Ooh,
2: right that, yeah. that's been confirmed just knocking on the door
1: yeah well they they published you know so it's peer reviewed uh, okay. so they and the, there's another aspect to this as well uh, and that is the stability of the process. So previously, the process would last only minutes, you know, it would sort of break down very, very quickly. Right. Uh, but they got the, uh, they were able to make the, um, the device stable over hours. So it's still a long way to go, you know, before I think it's really going to be, uh, right. the kind of thing you could scale up and, you know, and use on a, on, a, on a large amount. So it's they, a
2: double breakthrough, then,
1: kind of. Yeah, it's more stable and more efficient. You know, again, yeah, fourteen percent is knocking on the door. Fifteen percent, they're hoping. Again, they always say this. They always include something like, "When we scale up," or blah blah blah. But Mm -hmm. they're thinking that with incremental advances, they can get the the process that they're working on. They think they can get to seventeen percent. Uh so if they do that, they'll be well within the realm where um the whole thing will be cost effective. Right.
2: Wow. Well, that's that's great. It really seems like we're making. Even though the advances have been frustratingly slow, like you say all the time, yeah. Steve, they are incremental advances. And now with solar, and now with with solar hydrogen, it really seems like we are getting so close to the point where it would be cost effective to really, you know, scale these things up if they're yeah. scalable. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's really encouraging, and it's I, th- the, I think the next ten to fifteen years are going to be fascinating uh, for for this type of. Uh, For this type of thing.
1: Yeah, that's why I'm so interested in it because, you know, the bottom line is we have no idea what our energy infrastructure is going to look like in 20 years. You know, Mm -hmm. we can, we can make guesses based upon, you know, extrapolating from our current technology. But like, for Mm -hmm. example, I'm really curious. How much of, I mean, you know, you could go country by country, but let's focus on the U.S., for example. How much of the U.S. energy infrastructure is going to be nuclear in 20 or 30 years?
4: Yeah, that's so hard to say because that's such a like political question. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? And so I think definitely with these kinds of advances, it is so important for them to be like you said, cost-effective or for them to be competitive on the marketplace? Because until they are, they're never going to overcome the political challenges that come with getting away from fossil fuels.
2: Well, the political challenges are going to be tough, but I think over the over the last ten years, I think it's it's softened a a bit with with with, nucle- with nuclear because yeah. because you don't have there's no the carbon emissions are not there and that is so so incredibly attractive and other countries have done some amazing things so I have a little bit more hope
3: for for nuclear than I did say ten
2: years ago certainly
3: I hope so I hope events like Fukushima don't put a put us back as far as our, our yeah. progressive thoughts People and, mean, and ideas. But that
2: didn't help. But that, that's that was an old school reactor. We've got designs yes, for reactors no, that blow that away.
4: It's true, but you definitely I think that you see in the regions where we have the most Progressive, um, politics with regards to alternative energies. Those are the same regions where you see people pushing back against nuclear power, really? which is a really big bummer. Yeah. It's like the same, same way that you see anti vax popping up in more progressive political areas. It's kind of a weird anti-science thing because of the fear surrounding nuclear energy but we do definitely I I just looked it up it's 19.5% across the US our electricity comes from nuclear energy or at least it did in 2014 19.5% so I mean it's a chunk
2: yeah, yeah, but I think there's also a huge, huge benefit to the to the new generation of reactors that they could, that, that mm-hmm. they can start building, and th- that is that the uh, the waste, the, you know, the, the radioactive waste that's generated with these new designs is much much less than than anything we have online now, and you yeah. could also you could also burn the waste from older reactors. Yeah,
1: exactly. That's huge. That's if great. we could yeah.
2: if we could design a reactor that's that's just solid, that's just bulletproof in terms of something that is relatively, you know, relatively cheap and efficient and clearly the winner and if those types of reactors proliferated, there'd be no reason to build an old reactor but only if you wanted to have the, the you know to, to use the radioactive waste, you know, for For weapons,
1: There was a recent article in uh, Scientific American written by David Biello in which he argued that if we want to get to a carbon-free energy infrastructure, we have no option but to go nuclear. And he makes a very compelling case. Obviously, there Mm -hmm. are other people disagree with that. They think that we could get it entirely from renewables like wind and solar. Um, Big challenge. Big challenge with wind. I, Um, I agree. I tend to agree. I see that. You know, this century, if we want to go carbon zero this century, we're gonna need a combination of nuclear, wind, solar, and then with a dabbling of other renewables. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, certainly. That's what I, that's my bias. That's what I think from reading as as much as I do. One thing that's really interesting about the solar, getting back to solar and why the solar hydrogen is so interesting. So if you look at states or areas that have a lot of solar, the big problem, of course, is that it's only producing electricity when the sun is shining. Yeah. And the peak energy production from solar Does not exactly overlap with the peak energy demand. Uh, It's not a bad overlap during the summer, especially summer is actually pretty good. Longer night, yeah, yeah, because it's the longer days, you know. But in the in the winter, like fall, winter, spring, that early evening is tough. You know, you get you might get an hour or two where you have close to peak demand, and you and your
3: solar. Uh, energy productions dropped off to nothing. I mean, come on, Netflix people. We got to watch our Netflix. What do they expect? But Steve,
2: (laughs) Steve, like you said
3: in your blog though, we're not
2: close to to having that problem. We're we're not not making excess. I agree.
1: Yeah, yeah. We're not close to having that problem because we could just, you know, any excess energy you make, just put back into the grid. But we will get to that point. if we, if we really start to push solar, like if people really start to massively put solar panels on their house, and then mm-hmm. we do, we do, we can't, you know, fairly quickly get to the point where we are making more energy during real peak solar production than we need. Or the other thing is, think about this. The real goal is to reduce peak demand. Uh, so peak demand means, so we have to, we have to have the capacity to produce more electricity than the highest peak demand that there is in any region, right? Sure.
2: Mm-hmm. Otherwise you have a brownout.
1: Yeah. So our our capacity is based upon even that one little peak, we have to be ready for that. Um, and but during lots of other times, like in the middle of the night, you know, when everyone's asleep, the demand goes way down. So we have to bring everything online for peak demand. Even our more expensive electricity, our dirty electricity, the, more, the less efficient electricity, we've got to bring it all online in order to meet peak demand. So anytime we can reduce that peak demand, we can offset right. it. it, it makes energy production more efficient because we can use just the more efficient power sources.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and and also it right. means we don't have to maintain all of this unused capacity just for those peak demand moments. So that's why, that's why it matters whether or not yeah. solar ma- covers the, the entire peak, because if it doesn't cover even a bit of the peak, we still have to maintain that peak capacity.
4: The, those handful of times when we talk about s- something, you know, I think a lot of times we as individual people get really frustrated and overwhelmed with these massive environmental problems and we sit back and we think to ourselves, you know, how can turning off the lights or how can not running the water actually make a difference when there are, you know, whole sort of societies that are just coming online with gas cars and things like that. And this is a perfect example of that when we talk about these peak uh, times or this peak mm-hmm. kind of necessity. We can make behavioral changes, like very easy behavioral changes, that really take that pressure off those peak moments of the grid.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we can, but how? But there needs to be a motivation in order. And I to think do a lot so. of
4: times there is. You know, here in here in California, um, you can definitely save money by using energy in off-peak hours. Like the electric companies program their electric rates based on that. Yeah, peak energy off- is more
1: expensive for the consumer. Yeah. Yes. Of yeah, course, and of also,
4: course. like for example, I have an electric car, and you do um, cool. When I, yeah. Yeah, And when I was researching all the different uh, options, having an electric car and how to save money from the city, if you get a time of use meter installed, they give you crazy discounts if you really? plug your car in at night instead of during the day.
1: Yeah, they want you to use that off-peak energy yeah. and really not use energy during the peak demand. Absolutely, because that's just it's unused capacity for them.
2: Well, what if you what if you sucked up as much energy as you could at night when you're sleeping, store it? Well, then we're back to the storage problem. Yeah, store it and then use it to run critical parts of your house from that. Yeah, that's that would be great. A, hell of a lot that's, cheaper. That's
1: what we're going to have to do. One other point that came up, you know, in in the comments of my article was that the fluctuation in energy demand itself is really challenging. Yes. You know, it's not just that we need to maintain peak. We also need to rapidly adjust how much energy we're putting into the grid to meet demand. And that's actually really challenging on the system. So anything we can do to smooth out the demand is also really helpful. Not only reducing the peak, but smoothing it out. So again, that brings us back to solar hydrogen. You know, we just produce, we store up all that hydrogen during the peak solar you know energy production hours and then we use it to smooth out the grid you know to to reduce peak demand and and make that as flat as possible that's uh i think a viable option of course every time you store and then use energy you the, you know, the thermodynamics kicks in right thermodynamics is a bitch you, you, you take it around it. that yeah there's there's <laughs> there's, there's, there's it, it built in it's inefficiency it could be worth it cuz remember if you're offsetting Expensive, inefficient, dirty energy at peak. It still may be effective, cost-effective, carbon-effective, etc. To to you know store the energy and use it later. All right, Kara, you're going to tell us about a new human species that was discovered. Whoa, well, you know fossil yeah. species.
4: That's oh. right. An ancient <laughs> member of our family tree has been discovered. And uh, it, so far, it's offering us insights into our evolutionary past. But like most good science, this finding is kind of proposing more questions than answers at this point. Yeah. So the researchers involved have named it Homo naledi, after the place it was found. Uh, this area is known to anthropologists as the Cradle of Humanity. And within this region, about 30 miles north of Johannesburg, South Africa... This was the final resting place for a lot of hominin species. A lot were discovered earlier in, uh, in the century. But in this specific finding, there's a really well-traveled cave system there called Rising Star. But in a not so well-traveled portion of that cave called the Dinaledi Chamber, scientists found the first species of Homo Naledi. Did or, I'm you sorry. See, the first specimens. Did huh. you
1: see what? a, a schematic of the cave? Mm-hmm. Yes. There's these long, thin, very narrow chambers. These that you had, they had to get small people to crawl through them. The scientists themselves couldn't even get through. They, so they, yeah.
4: they were the, ten
1: inches,
2: ten yeah, inches. Oh. eight
4: to ten inches to get into the Dina Letty chamber.
2: They got all women to do that. They they put they put out a call to to, <laughs> to people like we need you need to be small and light. You also need to have these academic credentials and uh, no claustrophobia. And not be claustrophobic, yeah. no claustrophobic, also exactly. experience in caves. All these things, they thought they would get nobody, but they had dozens of people uh, apply they, and they used all women to do that. And it was an amazing, an, an amazing effort that they did to, to get these fossils.
3: It really was remarkable.
1: Uh, I thought, though, when I was looking at that, why didn't they just, you know, dig it out a little bit, make the openings bigger? I guess it wasn't possible.
4: Didn't
3: want to disturb the... Uh-
1: Yeah, maybe structurally
4: it wasn't possible. And also, I think for the context of the bones, it was really important to understand exactly what those passageways were like. I mean, if Homo n- naledi had been around or was still around today, I guess they could have gone in and gotten their own specimens out. They were a bit small, which we'll get to. Um, but what I love is that naledi in Sotho, which is a, one of the languages that they speak in South Africa, uh, it means star. So it's named for this rising star cave. Um, so the paper was published last week in eLife Sciences. Lee Berger and his colleagues uh, basically said that they have unearthed nearly, or I'm sorry, 15, not nearly 15, exactly. Exactly fifteen, nearly complete skeletons from a total of one thousand five hundred fifty bone and teeth specimens. This is this represents the largest uh, finding of hominin specimens in our history. Oh, it's the mother is, load. It's the absolute mother load. Um And although the researchers are pretty confident that Naledi is homo naledia, that it should be classified within the genus Homo, um, our branch of the evolutionary tree, of course. It does have some confusing features, and some scientists are not ready to rewrite the textbooks just yet. Some even claim that these uh, specimens could be an earlier Homo erectus Mm -hmm. uh, finding. So let's talk a little bit about why the researchers think it should be where it is in our evolutionary past. The first big open-ended question is, we have no idea how old these bones are. I know, they haven't been dated yet. They haven't been dated yet. I know, (laughs) we have no idea. So they've made some assumptions based on, you know, what they look like, where they found them, the way that the cave is laid out. But what we know from our genus, Homo which this would make it the eighth Homo species, our genus spans from about 2.8 million years ago to as recent as 100,000 years ago, obviously not including our own species, which is alive today. The team does believe that Homo naledi is closer in age to some of our earliest ancestors of the genus, so probably closer to over 1 million, even uh, over potentially 2 million years ago, than some of the uh, more recent ancestors, and this is why. Okay, some of its features are clearly human, or Homo in nature, and some of its features are very close to our Australopithecus ancestors. You guys remember Lucy,
0: mm-hmm. Australopithecus, yeah,
4: Australopithecus afarensis. And so, what what the researchers found is that the shape of the skull, the shape of the jaw, the dentition, the size of the teeth—they're much smaller than our older ancestors—and also the lower limb, and specifically the foot and ankle are especially human looking. They also found that the wrists and fingertips are very human looking and also the proportion of the fingers. And also they found that uh, the vertebrae are most similar to Pleistocene homo species. But some of the features are much closer to Australopithecus. The brain size is much more similar to Lucy. It's actually about the size of an orange. It's very small.
3: Whoa!
4: Yeah, Uh, the pelvis is flared much more like Australopithecus afarensis. The two middle finger bones, so like if you curve your finger, not the tip where your fingertip is, but the two bones beneath that, the proximal and intermediate phalanges, they're curved even more than any known Australopithecus species. So, so they were arboreal. They were definitely arboreal, but they were also. Well, I shouldn't say definitely. Never want to say that in science. They were very seemingly (laughs) arboreal, but they were also very seemingly adapted to be able to run to yeah. be able to actually stride oh. on the ground, um, th- their shoulders made them look more arboreal, and their rib cage was much more like atherensis. So th- it's it's weird. They're kind of hybrid. They're one of these amazing what missing leaks that we so love enigmatic. to find. In science, Damn. yes, yeah, yes. It's and,
3: a, we don't like that it's, term. Though.
1: We want to think of these fossils in a line, you know, like evolving mm-hmm. yes. from yes, something yes. that looks more like a chimpanzee to something that looks uh, that's Less. human. But it's a, it's a bush. It's a branching bush. And that's what we're seeing. We're picking out these random puzzle pieces from this bush. And so, yeah, we're going to, every species is like this. It's kind of a mix of features. And there's just this overall trend over time. It's like yes. horses, too. It's the same thing that. The line, you know, from Eohippus, which is now unfortunately called Hierarchotherium, which is kind of a misnomer. Anyway, at one end and then modern horses at the other. And then they arranged the the fossils in a line as if it was a direct line from the dawn horse to modern horses. But it wasn't. It was a branching bush uh, going in many directions. And we're just looking back in retrospect at the net result from the, the surviving extant species. Uh, same thing with, you know, with, with hominins. We're the only surviving hominin. We're not the end result of evolution. We're one branch and all the other hominin species were just evolving in their own directions. You know what I mean? Yeah, I they- figured out how to survive. Steve, could you distinguish hominin
2: and hominid and homo and all that?
1: Homo is our genus. It's homo equals human. So if you're any, all of the homo species are humans. Hominins include Everything, not just humans, but also Australopithecus, uh, and anything essentially on our branch after the split with chimpanzees. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's one mm-hmm. notch before that is um, primate, no, hominoid, hominoid. Yeah, oh, hominoid. yeah,
4: that includes the great apes. Yeah, the
1: great apes. At- uh, primate I Evan is like everything, including monkeys and so that goes and beyond, prosimians huh? and yeah lemurs. Yeah, that could.
4: Yeah, we, we used to call hominins hominids. Yeah. That was a more broad term, but that the newer classification, which is more specific to kind of humans, quote unquote, and our ancestors is hominin. Yeah. So here's some crazy things just for reference. Uh, like I said, brain size similar to an orange. Uh, the size of them was much more like a small bone or a small bodied modern human or like a very, very large Australopithecus. So they weighed somewhere between like 87 and 123 pounds. They were around 4 foot 10 inches. They, um, had their legs and feet seemed to be well adapted for a striding gait. Their hands seemed to be well adapted for fine man- manipulation of objects. So potentially they could, uh, use tools because of the way, or they were adapted to be able to. But their shoulders and their curved fingers were much more well suited for climbing. They had weaker mastication, chewing, of course, uh, than earlier ancestors, which, which the researchers say clearly puts them in the Homo lineage. Uh, their brain seemed to be most similar to Homo erectus and Homo habilis based on its shape. But of course it was, the size was, um, much more similar to Australopithecus. And here's a quote from the author. The enlarged brain size was evidently not a necessary prerequisite for the generally human-like aspects of manipulatory, locomotor, and masticatory morphology of Homo naledi. And I think that that's an important quote because it speaks to what Steve was talking about. Even within anthropology and human origins, there has been a long history of trying to lay these things out on a line and to try to say, as soon as the brain got bigger, that's when they started coming out of the trees or as soon as you know this thing morphologically happened all of this other stuff morphologically followed but we're starting to see now that as we piece together the long human history a lot of these little things were occurring independently of one another and there's not really a direct line i think another really interesting note on this one is that you know if again if you looked at that cave they were in this crazy place with a really small opening and it's just like piles and piles of bones like they Steve were dumping said, their bodies well that's what people are wondering was this a, a funerary practice was does the show an advanced understanding of death which is not what we would expect based on their brain size or some scientists are saying hey there are no tools present there's no evidence of symbolic ritual is this just a dumping ground from some later species like there's a who done it involved mm-hmm. we don't know yeah. Pretty interesting.
1: Fifteen individuals all at once, clearly the same species. It's definitely awesome. And I yeah. have to say, how do creationists maintain their denial in the face of this level of evidence? It breaks everything Seriously. they try to say. This you know, Naledi is clearly not an ape. You know what I mean? I mean it's not mm-hmm. it's not just like a, a, a chimpanzee or anything in the ape family. It's it's hands, its feet, it's just way too human. And it's clearly not a human. Its brain capacity is tiny. You know, mm-hmm. compared to humans, it's, mm-hmm. it's well, Steve. It's, yeah. like, it's just like it's halfway mm-hmm. in between. You know, right? And it, <laughs> well, Steve, I think the
2: answer is obvious. I mean, this is too perfectly in between. Like, like you say, I think a lot of them, yeah. if not most, will say this is a big fake. It's a big fake. Big. Ah! Uh, yeah, that's fake. because they have to right? resort to yeah. something like that. And when they resort to that, then you know that they're they're they have got nothing.
4: I and <laughs> I love it because if you just look at the first page of the source article, if you just Look at the number of authors on this study and all of the different <laughs> universities, like all the superscripts with the universities where they work across the entire globe. I mean, so many people work together on publishing this.
2: The, the big question, when will we find out uh, the age of these? Come on. How long I don't know. Take? Nobody's even yeah. nobody's what? even
4: telling us when like I haven't been able to find that uh, anywhere in the literature.
1: We'll, we'll give an update as soon as that information is out. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses.
3: Oh, we love The Great Courses, especially, Steve, the course called Your Deceptive Mind, A Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking Skills.
1: Of course.
3: (laughs) (laughs) A fantastic, fantastic overall course telling you everything you want to know. Regarding, boy, all the things we talk about on the show, critical thinking, skepticism, how memory works, perception, cognitive biases, and how does, and most, perhaps most importantly, how to distinguish science from pseudoscience. It's really, really a fantastic course.
4: And guys, the Great Courses are celebrating their 25th anniversary. They have over 500 lecture series on a ton of interesting subjects. Yeah, a whole lot. Although, you know, I have to admit that I like Steve's the best. Your deceptive <laughs> mind. Yeah, I got to say, a preferential. No, no
2: bias there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the people behind the camera were just awesome on that one.
4: And guys, just for a limited time, The Great Courses has a special offer for you, the SU listeners. You can order from eight of their best-selling courses, including Steve's Your Deceptive Mind, and you'll get them at up to 80% off the original price, plus free streaming with any format. That's insane, but it's only available for a limited time. So guys,
2: don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash
1: skeptics today.
2: That's the slash skeptics.
1: All right, guys, let's get back to our show. Well, Evan, you're going to tell us about Elon Musk's plan to nuke Mars. <laughs> <laughs> Is it his
3: plan? Get your nuke to Mars. <laughs> uh, get your ass to Mars. There's, uh, there's this guy. He's on TV at night. Stephen Colbert, maybe you've heard of him. Mm-hmm. I love him. <laughs> I, would, I would marry him. So he has, you know, he's the Tonight Show now, and he's the host of that show, and he had Elon Musk on not too many nights ago, and uh, they talked about many... Things and among them was the Mars the subject of Mars came up, which we know Elon Musk has a great interest in as for some time. And, uh, he says that not only should we go to Mars, but we need to go to Mars. That's effectively what Musk was saying. And Steve Colbert brought up the subject about the climate on Mars. Essentially, how would, how would people live there? And wouldn't they have to live in these domes, you know, in these artificial uh, homes for the entire time? And Musk said, yes, initially, he says there is the technology to transform Mars into an Earth-like planet, terraforming, which is turning another body, it's a moon or another planet, into uh, an environment where people from Earth could go and live one day. And so that piqued Steve Colbert's interest. He said, how are we going to do that? He said, well, there's two ways to do it. There's a fast way and a slow way. And Steve Colbert said, oh, give me the fast way. How do we do it quickly? And Elon Musk says, well, you drop thermonuclear weapons over the poles of Mars to warm it up and therefore make it sort of give it its first stage towards being able to terraform Mars. And that drew a lot of certainly attention after the fact and discussions about, well, first of all, is that even real, possible? Uh, and, you know, if or if not, what, what would be the result of dropping nuclear weapons on Mars and and the the, uh, the perhaps the unforeseen uh consequences of of doing such a thing. If you look around the internet there are a lot of a lot of scientists who chimed in on this and mainly brought up the 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 problems with doing so. First of all they say that if you're going to it's not necessarily a fast way to do it. If you're going to drop the nuclear weapons on Mars, it would take a very long time actually for the reactions to turn the ice into the gas necessary to form the atmosphere that you would need to start the process of terraforming Mars. Uh, ten centuries, according to Dr. Matthew Genji. Oh. Yeah, ten that's a long time. Dr. Matthew Genje <laughs> of Imperial College. And you would need a lot of them. It's not just a matter of dropping a couple nukes. It's a lot of them. He says that the biggest- Well, that would
1: be a good use for our nuclear arsenal.
3: Yeah, if we wanted to really get rid of what we've got, sure. I mean, better than destroying ourselves. (laughs) No, no problem with that. Uh, the largest weapons we have, a single weapon, yields 25 megatons of TNT. Uh, not enough. You need a lot of them. And don't forget, when you do this, uh, you're gonna have a lot of radiation. And the radiation tends to stick around for quite a long time. It gets embedded mm-hmm. into the surface, into the rocks, into everything going on, and they, that's not good. Especially if your plan, <laughs> if your plan is to inhabit it with a lot of people, uh, in the, in the somewhat near future. Plus, they also sort of brought up some other obvious ethical problems with this. In that, if you're going to do that, if you're going to nuke the surface of Mars, you run the risk of really damaging whatever potential life there may already be there that we don't know about.
1: Yeah, we'd have to really make sure there's no little microbes, you know, under there. Um, doesn't look good, but, yeah, you know, we definitely would want to know. Another way to do it that, uh, I've read about for years is to. Comets? S- smack asteroids and comets into it. I yeah. That. Yep. Yeah. Find a comet with lots of, you know, water and volatiles smack it into the pole of mars and it would not only you know the impact would melt some of the pole it would also release its own uh liquid do that enough times and you could yeah it could have a, a wet warm mars
4: would that potentially screw up like its orbit
1: Nah, nothing. you don't though. think so don't. They don't not, be significantly, small enough. not significantly yeah. but yeah obviously we can't we have to do that before we start occupying the planet you know we don't right. want to be smacking asteroids into the planet while we're there, and even still, that's going to take a long time. We got to go out to you know to where the the bodies are, and then direct them in somehow, and then wait for them to, you know, could be a 200 years before they find their way into the inner solar system. Hope hopefully we hit the bullseye and they hit Mars.
2: Well, that's that's ridiculous. Huh. The, the award cloud is like one to two
1: light years away. We well, we wouldn't go there. I mean, that would be that. That, you can't that would go get way those. too far. No, you'd have to find one. But, that, right. To find some objects. that are closer in. Yeah.
3: There are a couple inherent problems, though, with Mars itself. Yeah, it's close, which is you know, Ish. A, a bit It's close-ish, relatively speaking, <laughs> compared to some of the other bodies they're talking <laughs> yeah. about terraforming, such as you know, moons of Saturn and
0: mm-hmm. so
3: forth. So you have that advantage, but you've got some inherent disadvantages. Uh, the gravity of Mars is, I think, an inherent disadvantage. of that on Earth. Why is that a problem? Because you would need, they say, it would require 2.6 times the Earth's column air mass to obtain the right pressure at the surface in order to Uh. exist. So you've got quite a substantial amount of atmosphere you would essentially have to be generating and and are you going to be able to overcome the, the lighter gravity? There's also a problem in that we enjoy a nice, uh, protective, uh, magnetosphere here on Earth, which covers the entire Earth. But on Mars, it's quite different. You don't have one that covers the whole planet. You just have sort of this pocket, which they say exists mainly in the southern hemisphere. Maybe it covers maybe 40% of its surface. And it's weak. And it's very weak. And it's, and and it's not, not ideal. It's not, probably not going to provide the sort of protection. That we're going to need. So how do how do you get over these sort of you know really insurmountable uh, problems with sunscreen with existing on with existing on Mars? I don't know. Well, have you ever heard of uh, para terraforming? No, what is that? No, what is that? Para-terraforming, para terraforming. P A R A terraforming. Also known as huh. the world house concept. Essentially, what you're doing is you're creating a dome. You're building your own dome. Mm-hmm. a habitable enclosure on a planet which eventually grows to encompass most of the planet's usable area it would exist the clo- enclosure would consist of sort of this transparent roof held a kilometer or a mile or even more above the surface and you would pressurize it with a breathable atmosphere and it would be anchored with all these tension towers and cables at you know at the correct intervals at which the engineers, you know, would sort, of, would sort of figure out. And you can start, it's feasible in that you. they say you can start with a small area, say like a domed city, and then you essentially build onto it from there. You construct off of that and you keep going and you keep going and you keep going until you reach your desired full effect, which is uh, pretty cool because it's, you know, seems doable. It's probably within or close to the amount of uh, technology that, that we have. We wouldn't have to wait 100 years for... For, for other things to to come along, uh, and and hope for the best. Uh, but there are some Wait, a
2: mile high, a mile high dome. Even in one you know one third gravity is uh, that's a hell of an engineering task. Yeah, but hell it an-
4: still sounds cheaper than trying to figure out how to come up with that many nukes, get that many nukes to Mars, set that many nukes off on Mars. I mean, that's right. insane, right? Don't you think this this seems more plausible to me? Let's just <laughs>
1: turn on the alien machine, you know, and there
4: we go.
2: Yeah,
1: right.
4: <laughs> it's more
2: it's more b- benign certainly, but I think it would be a hell of a lot cheaper to to build a rocket and send 100 nukes over there than to build, but, than to build this dome in terms of pure expense.
4: But I thought that I read that we only have like on our entire planet like a fraction of the nukes that would be necessary to be that, able to do this to Mars. That many nukes? Yeah, I think it's like a, an absurd number of nukes
3: you guys know who Michael Mann is, obviously? Yeah. He's the mm-hmm. director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University. Obviously, you know, he comes up in, all, in many topics about uh, global warming. What he says in regards to this is that you could have a side effect which would actually cause Mars to cool even further. Sort of a nuclear winter effect, in, in a sense, because the dust and particles would block out a lot of the sunlight coming in. And therefore, mm-hmm. you would not achieve the desired effect. You would have pretty much the opposite effect. Hmm. So that would be bad. Um, regarding the paraterraforming before, also uh, one, at least one inherent disadvantage of building something that massive, that complex. Uh, how do you protect it from particles and little meteoroids and things coming into the, uh, into the Martian? Surface, right, right, right. right? because it's not going to burn up in the atmosphere. Yeah, you
1: need an atmosphere just for protection. So,
3: what do you you need to shield it somehow? And you know, unless you have that kind of technology, uh, you you know, a a puncture in your system could create a catastrophic effect. So, that's that's kind of a catch twenty two there, perhaps. So, maybe maybe that's not the right the right way to go about it. But there are different ways to try to potentially achieve this, and you know, hopefully, we don't have to use nuclear nukes in order to do it um we'll be able to figure out other ways
4: what about gmos i read a little bit about gmos we could have genetically modified microorganisms
1: yeah or, or just we plants yeah
2: yeah that's more of the slow process of terraforming yeah um, now, not that's if there's like a, a th- lot of
1: them though yeah, it's thousands of years is what i've read yeah. really I mean, oh that's yeah. a bummer
2: we we it's going to be nanotechnology that will do it fast and benignly
1: uh, that's your panacea Bob. nanotech <laughs> right it's <laughs> a it's a,
2: a hell of a panacea i mean mature nanotech Bob, tell me
1: about metallic glass.
2: Hey, guys, this one was pretty cool. Australian researchers have created an instruction manual or recipe book of sorts for making amorphous metals or metallic glass that could help finally make this wonder metal fulfill its promise. Metallic glass sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? It's kind of like a a dim supernova. I mean, how could you have something that's metallic and glassy at the same time? Uh, Glass is generally considered to be fragile and easy to break. And metal just isn't like that at all. So how do you combine those two? Um, you know, how transparent glass. Yeah, yes. that's what I was thinking. The question is, what makes a glass a glass? And it's pretty much all about how the atoms are arranged. Uh, in glass, they are not ordered; they're placed kind of randomly here and there. And for this reason, it's called an amorphous solid. Metal, on the other hand, is non-amorphous. It's a crystalline solid, and that has an orderly arrangement of atoms forming what are called the crystal lattice structures. So um, a metallic glass, then, does not have this nice, predictable arrangement of atoms. It's an amorphous metal. That's what metallic glass is. And this was discovered in 1960 in Caltech in the United States. I think this is the second time we mentioned Caltech in this episode. And it's formed by rapidly cooling an alloy of various metals and the rapid cooling is actually the keystone, critical aspect of this. Because when you rapidly cool a metal that way, it prevents the atoms from moving and forming into this crystalline uh, arrangement, making it amorphous instead. So uh it, it kind of locks it into this glassy, amorphous configuration. Uh, but the thing is, when I said rapid cooling, I, I meant it. I mean, we're talking a million degrees per second that is rapid. So early on when they created the first metallic glass, they could only make ribbons or wires out of that because uh, you needed at least one dimension of the material really, really skinny in order to to even come close to, to cooling it at the required rate. But over time, they some other metallic glasses required – only say ten thousand degrees a second, or a hundred degrees, and I think these are all in Kelvin. A hundred degrees per second, and some of them were even uh, created a glassy state at one degree per second. So they slowed it down a lot. So because of that, they were able to make larger samples of metallic glass, obviously. But still, that rapid cooling is ultimately a very limiting factor for metallic glass. But um, it was realized pretty quickly, though, that metallic glass has amazing properties. It's a, It's incredibly strong and light. Some examples are three times as strong as titanium, which just oh. blows me away. Um, but it also has lots of other uh, beneficial characteristics. It's got high elasticity, resistance to scratching and wear, and corrosion. It's it's really a remarkable material. Uh, material so much so that it's been called the most significant discovery in material science since the discovery of plastics half a century ago. Oh, well. That is a yeah, hell of a boast. Big. But the mechanical properties of metallic glass is it, only part of its awesomeness because. There's also creating it, creating products made out of uh, metallic glass would give you, there'd be tremendous benefits. Uh, compared to the way regular metals are manipulated. Because when you machine regular metal using conventional methods, it's, it can be very expensive. It can be very wasteful. Metallic glasses, on the other hand, are, are easy to manipulate. And that's because it becomes a viscous solid that's, that's easily deformable at super cool temperatures. Now, what you would do is you would heat, you would heat it up at a temperature that was be- between the glass transition temperature and the crystallization temperature. In, in that range, in that temperature range, it becomes this v- very viscous and something that you could, you could mold relatively easily. So this has lots of advantages over the classic melt casting techniques that we've all seen. Those awesome videos of with the you know the, the molten liquids being poured into molds. Uh, some of the benefits are that the casting defects is, are reduced. Uh, the, the mold tools uh, suffer much less damage because the temperatures are much lower when you're dealing with a, vis- uh, a viscous material like that. And there's also greater control over the geometry and the tolerances. So therefore, the metallic – the potential future metallic glass industry could be quite viable commercially and have many more uh, – you know, much more efficient than conventional metalworking. Um, and uh, I read some quotes by William Johnson who was a professor of material science at uh, Caltech. He said that this could even become a disruptive technology in the metals industry. Um, and I, of course, love disruptive technologies so the new development, that's all the background that you kind of needed. The new development is that researchers in Sydney have created a unique model of the atomic structure of metallic glass. And this new model uh, actually allows them, them to predict which combination of metals have the potential to to become this metallic glass because not all metals can be used, not all combinations work. So this could be a tremendous benefit because metallic glass is often made of varying percentages of m- many different metals like, uh, let's see, magnesium, zirconium, palladium, iron, copper, titanium, metals like that. So you've got lots of these different metals and then you combine them in varying ratios. So you could imagine when you're testing all these different metals in different ratios, it, it's very slow. It's really a hit or miss affair so with this new model that they've developed they could successfully predict which combinations and which ratios will produce metallic glasses um that that they're looking for so they've actually predicted no less than 200 new different types of metallic glass alloys uh that are based just on f- uh, five or so of these metals so titanium magnesium silver copper and zinc now the task would be i presume that they would need to go and then actually make these and see what kind of properties these different types of metallic glass can have
1: yeah material science is cool
2: oh yeah very
4: All right, Kara, what's the word? All right. So, of course, last week the word was stochastic, and this week's word is one that I know Steve knows well. So I want to ask you, Bob and Evan, do you know the word anosmia?
3: Spell that, please.
4: A-N-O-S-M-I-A. Oh, I used
2: to know that word. (laughs) Um... Oh, it's something about odor, something smelling. about odor. Yeah. Good job. Yeah, all yeah. right. So
4: anosmia is, uh, the loss of sense of smell. It's often caused by head injury, infection, or of course blockage of the nose or nasal passages. We can all induce anosmia right now if we just plug our noses. But of course, for many people, anosmia is more serious because, as I said, this can be um, the result of brain damage. Now, anosmia comes from the New Latin anosmia, same word, which comes from the Greek an, meaning no or none, and osma, meaning smell. That's also a cognate of the Latin term odsma, meaning odor. And of course, I say of course, I didn't know this until I looked it up, New Latin yeah. is described in etymological parlance as the language that was used in scholarly and scientific works between 1375 and the year 1900.
0: New so, Latin. Oh, it stops New Latin. Okay.
4: Yes, it stops in 1900, but we definitely do see things written in New Latin in the 1800s, which is when we see the earliest appearance of anosmia in medical texts in English. Now, the earliest reference that I could find was from T.S. Watson's Diseases of the Nose, which was published in oh. 1875, although we know that it was used as early as 1815. But in Diseases of the Nose, T.S. Watson says that, quote, a nosmic individual should be aware they run great risks in regard to sewer emanations and other poisonous effluvia. I'd say <laughs> that's good advice.
2: Poisonous All right, effluvia.
4: Poisonous effluvia. I've got some um, associated words here. Normosmia is a normal sense of smell. Anosmia, of course, is the complete loss, or sometimes I think it's referred to as partial loss because you can have you can be anosmic in one nostril. Hyperosmia is increased sensitivity to odors. Dysosmia is any defect or impairment in the sense of smell. Hyposmia, or probably hyposmia, diminished sense of smell. Parosmia. A uh, perversion or distortion of the sense of sw- smell, like smelling one odor but thinking it smells differently. Phantosmia would be phantom smell, uh, smelling something that's not there. And presbyosmia is a decrease in the sense of smell that's associated with aging, similar to presbyopia. Presbyopia, yeah. Yep. Nice. So there you go. That cool. is. I like.
2: Um, I loved all the variations okay. of the word. Cool.
4: Yes. That's a fun uh, neurology term that you will sometimes read in the literature, especially if you read Oliver Sacks like I do or other um, neurology case studies. But you will also sometimes find it in a literary sense um, to mean the same thing as nose blind.
1: Yep. And that prefix, that A N is, is the, uh, what tells you that it's the lack of smell. And mm-hmm. that's like, like, My favorite version, my favorite neurological term that uses the A-N prefix is anosagnosia.
4: Ooh.
1: You know what that means, Kara?
4: Anosac? Is that S-A?
1: Anosagnosia. A-N-O-S-A-G-N-O-S-I-A. Anosagnosia.
4: So I know that agnosia is having a difficulty categorizing or labeling things. I know prosopagnosia is having a difficulty recognizing faces. That's a good one. Anosagnosia. What is that? can
2: you can't recognize a smell? No,
1: it's
4: no, the, it's got to be something with with. Cl- it's a classification yeah, disorder. It's like the inability
1: recognize to recognize that you have a neurological deficit. Oh, oh,
4: I love it. That's, it's so meta. Yeah. that's a that's a <laughs> messed
2: That's a messed up disability right there. When you can be just messed up and you just like, I'm fine. Because the the
1: part of your brain that tells you that that gives you the ability also is what you would need to recognize that you don't have the ability. All right. Well, let's go on to uh, a question. We haven't done a question in a little while. This one comes from Ben Texley from Newburgh, Oregon, and he writes, I was quite taken aback listening to episode 529 with my wife and children when fibromyalgia was dismissed as a non-existent disease along with several others. Just to let you know, there was just a scientific study that tentatively identified a scientific diagnostic technique for fibromyalgia. We all have to remember, just because something has not been completely defined, that does not make it fake or non-existent. C. Higgs boson. There are also several other newer studies that show oddities in uh, peripheral nerve growth and other physical changes. Whether or not it is completely understood, it is a real disease and or syndrome. Your comments were insensitive and misinformed, in my opinion. Um, I did email uh, Ben back. And in fact, it, it, his um, question inspired me to write a blog post about it uh, because this is a this does come up quite frequently, and we just you know did a drive by on the show. The thing is a lot of issues come up on the show, and because it's unscripted, you know we might just make a quick comment about it and then move on, especially if it's something i've uh, that's been addressed in the past. You know, we can't go on a five-minute tangent every time certain topics are raised on the show.
3: Bob tries. Yeah, Bob tries to do that. <laughs> or, sometimes, what's interesting?
1: Sometimes we do, and I edit it out for time. You know, and then somebody complains that we didn't go on the tangent that I edited no, it out. Oh, we did. <laughs> yeah. But whatever. What are you going to do? I mean, you know, show get every show episode can't be five hours long. But in any case, I actually didn't say that fibromyalgia didn't exist. I said it sort of exists. And that was my quickie way of saying that it's complicated, but you don't have time to go into it right now. But I did no, go it into it in great detail <laughs> on my blog post, which is called, Is Fibromyalgia Real? And the answer is sort of, uh, <laughs> the, the, the summary I gave on the show. It, so first of all, I really objected to the characterization of calling my comments uh, insensitive This has absolutely nothing to do with patients who are diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Nothing. It's all about the legitimacy of the diagnosis itself, not whether or not people who get diagnosed with fibromyalgia are having symptoms. It's about how to understand and categorize their symptoms. Now, fibromyalgia is and remains a highly controversial diagnosis. For a little bit of background, not all medical diagnoses are created equal, right? While there's a lot of complexity here, you can divide them broadly into two categories. There are disease diagnoses, which are based upon some kind of understanding of a physiological process that's happening, right? These are called pathophysiological entities. Mm -hmm. Often, a disease diagnosis that's a pathophysiological entity is diagnosed at least with support from some kind of anatomical scan or laboratory testing or physiological measure, some kind of objective measure. Then at the other end of the spectrum, there are syndromes, which are based entirely on just a an assortment of clinical uh, signs and symptoms, sometimes entirely just symptoms. Migraine headaches is always my favorite example of this, partly because I'm a migraine doctor, but Uh, Because migraines are completely uncontroversial. That's why it's such a great example. Nobody's going to argue that migraines don't exist. They clearly do. But the diagnosis of migraine is based entirely on a patient's constellation of symptoms. Hmm. That's it. There's no laboratory confirmation or anything. Right.
4: Alzheimer's is kind of like that, right? You don't well, know if somebody has Alzheimer's until you can look post-mortar. at them. Post-mortem. Post-mortem. Yeah,
1: look at the brain. So, so Alzheimer's, what the, the diagnosis that we make in living people is called Alzheimer's type dementia. But Alzheimer's disease requires pathology. And then that is not often confirmed until autopsy because we don't. We don't do a brain biopsy because it's not worth it. It's, it's not sure. going to alter our management. So we just wait until they die, you know, confirm the diagnosis on autopsies for the family history, which I always highly recommend. Um, so but that's,
4: that's different from fibromyalgia in that a fibromyalgia patient on autopsy doesn't have a clear exactly, indication. Exactly. Exactly.
1: There's no pathophysiological markers or anything. Mm-hmm. It is based on symptoms. And the symptoms are also, there's a lot of nonspecific symptoms in the diagnosis of fibromyalgia. Yeah. Maybe you know, it's basically, things. it's basically diffuse muscle and and tissue pain. That's the, that's sort of the core symptom, but there's a lot of things that go along with that include impaired sleep, headaches, anxiety, depression, fatigue. You can have uh, nausea, joint problems. So there's a lot of, you know, constellation of symptoms, but they don't really tell us a lot about the pathophysiology because the symptoms themselves are all fairly nonspecific. Now, typically, historically, when you have a diagnosis like that, and then we do start to tease apart what's going on, usually what we find is that the diagnosis probably is more than one actual clinical entity. And Uh, people use the diagnosis for what we call a garbage pail diagnosis, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, diffuse muscle pain and we don't know what else is going on. We're just going to call it fibromyalgia. I see the the diagnosis used in that way.
4: We see it in uh, IBS, right? Where it's kind of like so many things could be wrong and that's kind of the last diagnosis available.
1: Yeah, there's also what we call the diagnosis of exclusion. It's like this is what you're left with when you've ruled out all the things that can be diagnosed with blood work or scans or whatever. Mm. Right, you say okay. Oh, well, you have diffuse pain. The workup is normal. We'll call it fibromyalgia.
4: Is um is chronic fatigue syndrome yes. similar to that? Yes.
1: Okay. And sometimes there
4: are, are there are syndromes that are
1: overtly that overtly that fever of unknown origin. What's a fever of unknown origin? It means you have a fever. We don't know why. That's all it is. Uh, and it's you know it could be one of a thousand things. Mm. Um, chronic fatigue means you have chronic fatigue, and we don't know why. Now, a subset of people with chronic fatigue probably have a very specific cause. An Epstein-Barr virus infection, for example. Mm But now you you can limit the diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome just to people who have Epstein-Barr virus. But then, what do the other people who have otherwise undiagnosed chronic fatigue have? So that's how the names evolve. You know, you start to peel off pieces of a of a clinical syndrome when you when you discover that a subset of people have a specific pathophysiology. But again, there's lots of things that cause chronic fatigue. Not everyone with chronic fatigue has chronic fatigue syndrome. For example, you may have multiple sclerosis and that is causing your chronic fatigue. You don't have chronic fatigue syndrome. You have multiple sclerosis. One of the symptoms might be chronic fatigue.
4: You may have a new baby.
1: (laughs) So fibromyalgia, it's the same thing. that People have fibromyalgia symptoms and symptoms. And they get given this clinical syndrome diagnosis because we have to call it something when you have chronic pain and we don't otherwise know why. But there's good evidence to suggest that a lot of people who end up with that diagnosis may just have a sleep disorder uh, or they may just have depression. But again, this is not in any way to suggest that people who have chronic pain don't have something actually happening. My, my, my mm-hmm. main problem with garbage pail diagnoses like this is that they're p- just placeholders. And it's okay to use it as a placeholder. The problem is is it's too easy to confuse the placeholder for a real diagnosis, meaning a specific pathophysiological entity, when, when it isn't. Um, and that can cause you to prematurely settle on this label because you think the label means something more specific than it really does. It doesn't mean that it's, that symptomatic management is not also reasonable because when people feel better, then they get exercise and they sleep better and then, then lack of sleep is associated with weight gain. So it's all tied together. They're all what we call comorbid. So you got to kind of treat everything together. Lose weight, exercise, sleep better, treat the, the pain, treat the symptoms, treat the depression so you have the motivation to do stuff. Got to treat it all together as a comorbid syndrome.
2: I love that term, comorbid. Yeah. Comorbid.
1: But the problem with comorbid syndromes like that is that the lines of cause and effect are not clear. Mm-hmm. And I, I try to actually get my patients often to just stop obsessing about the lines of cause and effect because we may never tease it apart and who cares? You know, we, we, the bottom line is it's, it's probably not going to yield anything useful clinically. Obviously, researchers are that's what they're doing. They're trying to tease things apart and that's great. But on an individual patient, we can go around forever trying to do that. And it's just not necessarily going to – the chances are it's not going to yield anything useful clinically. What we want to do is just treat all the stuff we know how to treat and get you better. You know what I mean? Now, when you do research on patients with fibromyalgia, you find stuff. Uh, but the problem is how are you defining the category? Because it's a, it's a kind of an open-ended clinical syndrome without any specific – Criteria, anything like objective on laboratory testing, you probably have a mixture of patients in the study. So the the study that I believe uh, the email was referring to, and I've, this has also been brought up to me in other contexts as well, and I've looked into this, is that there are a, there is a number of, of studies that show that patients with fibromyalgia are more sensitive to pain. When you look at their brain function, their brain reacts more to pain than control patients do. That's interesting. Oh, interesting. What does that mean though? You know, right. Does that you mean that them. that's the disorder and that that's what's causing the fibromyalgia or is that a response to having chronic
4: pain? How could you test that?
1: Or is there something else going on that's causing both of those things? Again, we don't know what the cause and effect is.
4: And in practice does it well, really matter. Well, the thing is people
1: take it as validation. You see, see, it means my syndrome is real, quote unquote real, because there's something mm-hmm. different on the brain fMRI scan, you know, for the practitioner. In my opinion, that's not really the issue. Of course it's real. Your symptoms are real. You're having pain. That's real. When I say what, when I say it's questionable whether or not the diagnosis of fibromyalgia is real it does not mean that we're questioning whether or not patients really have pain and even though i painstakingly explained that in my blog post people still wrote in response you can't tell me it's not real i have pain every day yep read the freaking article people's pain read the article yeah. the, the 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 point is yes it's, these are two separate questions and the scientific mm-hmm. clinical question of what the diagnosis actually means and how informative it is, how useful is it, does it predict anything, does it tell us how you're going to respond to one treatment or another, or whatever, is different from the question of, you know, are patients really having pain or are they really sick?
4: Yeah. And in practice, it seems like it's also important that, you know, we understand that the clinician's perspective is different from the scientist's perspective, is different from the patient's perspective. Because, of course, having a diagnosis can be life-changing to somebody who wouldn't otherwise have their insurance cover treatments. If they didn't have a diagnosis. Exactly.
1: So we, the thing is we need, we need to mm-hmm. assign labels to patients. You know, we just from a practical point of view, uh, you know, we can prescribe medications for it, whatever. But you still have to look at each patient individually and don't think that you understand something about what's going on because you've attached the label fibromyalgia mm-hmm. to them. That's the problem is when you think it's giving you information when it really isn't because it's too nonspecific a diagnosis. That's what I mean by it sort of exists. It's not a pathophysiological entity. It is a clinical syndrome placeholder. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about a new sponsor this week, Zip Recruiter. You know, if you're a business owner... You know, you occasionally you need to hire people and you can use ZipRecruiter in order to post your job openings and to search a massive database.
4: Yeah, it's crazy. You can post a 100 plus job sites right there at ZipRecruiter and, you know, you'll have a really good chance of finding that perfect candidate.
2: Plus, it really puts the whole process on steroids. You can be matched to candidates from over 6 million resumes.
3: And you can try ZipRecruiter now for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash skeptics. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash skeptics.
1: All right, guys. Let's get back to the show.
0: It's time for Science or Fiction.
1: Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Just got three regular news items this week. You guys ready? Ready. I think so. All right. Here we go. Item number one, a comparison of nearly a million tweets finds that liberals are more likely to use inclusive words such as we and us, while conservatives are more likely to use profanity. Item number two, a new comparison finds that students taking interactive online learning courses learn six times more per unit of study than traditional online lectures. And item number three, a new computer model finds that rocky planets close to red dwarf stars so that the same side of the planet always faces their star may still have conditions habitable for life. Bob, go first.
2: Okay, so let's see. A million tweets—that's a lot of tweets. So liberals are more inclusive; conservatives more likely to use profanity. You know, sure that—I don't know how to evaluate that other than um, that it kind of makes sense. Uh, but I, I would be curious to find out what the result would be if it was the opposite. If we've had, uh, you know, a conservative presen- president president uh, after for seven years and. And we, with an election coming up, and and I wonder if it would be the opposite. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if you know uh, if that were the case. Interactive online learning courses six times per unit of study than traditional online lectures. Interactive, yeah, I could see how interactive interactivity would help. But I thought I had the impression that um, that that kind of teaching just wasn't necessarily that much more effective. Oh, that's a tough one. Let's see, the, uh, the third one though, the, uh, so you got a tidally locked rocky planet that could still potentially have conditions. So you'd have, the, so the classic problem here is that you got one side of the planet facing the sun, which is unbearably hot. You got the opposite side, which never sees the sun, which is incredibly cold. But, uh, I always thought that, um, that somewhere in between those two extremes, you could, you could find potentially places that are much more ha- habitable. But I guess it also depends on other things like uh, on the wind currents and, and things like that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to buy that one. And the, uh, the tweet one kind of makes sense as well. So I'll have to say that the online learning courses is fiction.
1: Okay, Evan.
3: All right. A million tweets, huh? Liberals are more likely to use inclusive words. Conservatives are more likely to use profanity. It's hard to kind of filter out what I see compared to what actually <laughs> is. Obviously, I don't see a million tweets. I don't know. That one could be the fiction. The students taking interactive online learning courses learn six times more per unit of study than traditional online lectures. I I don't know any... I'm not really sure how to compare the two or what would lead me to believe that this, uh, this would necessarily be wrong. I'll jump to the third one. Rocky planets close to red dwarf stars. Same side of the planet always faces their star. May have conditions habitable for life. I agree. I agree with Bob. It's, my understanding is that you have this Goldilocks zone of, of its own on the planet, in which not too hot, not too cold. So yeah, you could uh, have some life right, ar- right along that band. So therefore, is it the tweeting or is it the online learning courses? Well, I'll just put a nickel down. I'll go with Bob. I'll say the online learning course is one. Not that it's a matter of the change of the unit six times more Six times more. Um, there's something else missing here. This, that I can't really put my finger on. So for the sake of the void inherent in that, uh, in that statement, I'll say that that one's the fiction.
4: And Kara. The Twitter one sticks out to me because in my experience, because I grew up in a very conservative state, I find that conservatism is highly correlated with religiosity. And I find that super religious people actually curse less so that sort of bothers me i'm not sure though on the second or on the um other on hand. the one about yes on the other hand <laughs> um when when it comes to the interactive online learning courses learning six times more than i don't know if that's the right number but i know that you don't often change like Tiny things like numbers. And I think definitely having an interactive online course would be more effective than a traditional online course. I still wonder if an online course is anywhere close to as effective as an in-person course. But so I think that the, um, the study about online courses or the comparison at least seems like a fact, not a fiction. I'm still questioning the Twitter study. The new computer model finds that rocky planets close to red dwarf stars. Okay. So I'm trying to remember from astronomy class. In 2001 – I remember it was 2001 because I remember I was in this class during 9-11, which was crazy. So it's like burned into my memory. But I remember learning about red dwarf stars. And if I'm remembering this correctly, red dwarf stars are relatively cool. And so it does seem like maybe if a planet is facing a cooler star, it could handle life, even if it's always facing that direction. I'm kind of pulling that out of my ass, but we'll see. So because – because the um the online learning one and the red dwarf one seem plausible. I mean the Twitter one seems plausible too, but I'm just really I don't know, people in Texas don't really curse. <laughs> and so I think I'm gonna have to go with um with the Twitter one being the fiction, which scares me because I'm I'm not answering with the guys. Oh boy.
1: Going uh, out on your own, striking out let on your that own. Scare you. you should oh, be You no. afraid. Okay. Oh, yeah, I mean, be very afraid. Well, you all agree with the third one, so let's start there. A new computer model finds that rocky planets close to red dwarf stars, so that the same side of the planet always faces their star, may still have conditions habitable for life. You all think that one is science, and that one is science.
2: Yay. Good so far. Cool. You're all safe. Okay. How do they, how is it survivable?
1: Yeah, so it's not the like a Goldilocks band around the middle. That's not the case. It is all about the atmosphere. So if you have a thick enough atmosphere, and then it depends on the pattern of wind, the wind patterns around the planet, there are, like I think the, the computer models found that there are three stable kind of patterns that the, the wind would fall into, and with two of them, the temperature would be distributed, redistributed around the planet sufficiently that, you know, the the whole planet could essentially have habitable temperatures, you know, where, wow. where you have liquid water.
2: That's cool. They must have a hell of a jet stream.
1: <laughs> yeah. It, that's what it is. It's just a, you have to have mm. jet streams at the right altitude and the right sort of mix and direction and then it would work. But one of them would, would not be compatible. You know, it would still be too right. hot on the hot side and cold on the cold side. Uh, so that's interesting.
2: I wonder if we could even fly through such a hot jet stream. You could live on it, but if you try to travel to the planet, you will be incinerated. Yeah.
4: <laughs> I am so glad that. Whether or not we get these right or wrong has nothing to do with our reasoning behind that choosing that. pisses them. me
2: off. That's what pisses <laughs> well, me off.
1: No, it's because like,
2: I'm- oh, let's just let's, let's just flip a coin then, shall we? Oh, there's yeah. always
1: something in there that you could latch Bam, on to, to try bah, to make sense of bah, it. Bah
2: humbug. Sometimes yes, a lot of times sometimes.
1: Oh. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll see how your reasoning did this week. You're mm. all, you're you're usually better off trying to reason your way through it than meta reasoning, like trying to say like is Steve trying to trick me. You guys. <laughs> Usually don't do good when you try to do that. But in any <laughs> case, this one is science. This is interesting. What it what it tells me is that there's probably a lot more types of worlds yeah. out there that are potentially habitable than just being Earth-like distance from an Earth-like Class star. M yeah. Planet, yeah. yeah. So even yeah, a small small rocky planet that's tidally locked to a red dwarf could potentially have life. That's really interesting. Right. Think about that. Mm-hmm. Think about how different right. that would be. To conditions right. on Earth. Or like uh, moons orbiting
2: a gas giant or even rogue planets yeah. that could potentially harbor life. How awesome is that? Yeah.
4: That'd I see be awesome. some uh, new sci fi stories coming out in our Absolutely,
1: future. absolutely. All right, let's go back to number one. A comparison Ooh. of nearly a million Ooh. tweets finds that liberals are more likely to use inclusive words such as we and us, while conservatives are more likely to use profanity. Kara, you think this one is the fiction because conservatives don't cuss.
4: Oh no. The rest of you think this
1: one is science? Mm-hmm. And this one is say it, the say fiction. it, crap. The fiction, crap. Good job, Kara. Is Cara. that why do nice, conservatives Cara. not cuss? That's right. That's one of the reasons. <laughs> They're both actually wrong. They're both flipped. Oh, so there you go. conservatives. See, I thought
4: the first half was right. Ooh.
1: Conservatives were much less likely to to use profanity. Liberals like to say shit and fuck a lot. In fact. <laughs> Those they two. Do. Once you remove out the most ah. common English words like the and of and that that kind of stuff, shit and fuck were in their top ten. No way. Yes, <laughs> in the top ten words that they use. Whereas conservatives don't like to curse because they They but they do like to use religious words more, like God. Interesting. Um, what's funny yeah. is I recently was in a bit of a debate with a religious person and who was trying to be intimidating at one point. I think. But he was telling us that you are full of poop, and <laughs> you, I'm just sorry, but that has zero intimidation value. Value when you say that you're full of poop. That's pathetic.
4: It oh was, yeah, I remember my dad. He would be so mad, and he would say, darn it, darn it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, his, that's his angry yell.
1: So some interesting yeah. things came out of this, though. I mean, this is this is data mining. You know, you could patrol through. Again, I m- almost a million tweets. I just look for word use patterns, and yeah, but how do you know? Uh, how do you know if someone's conservative or liberal unless because, you vet every damn well, tweet? And that's, that's a million of them. That's a uh, good question. A, they, right. they, and- it was on Republican and Democratic Twitter feeds, you know. So they, uh, oh, okay, yeah, oh, they, yeah, they assumed it. Yeah, is how they were re- either Republican or Democratic party Twitter accounts. So. Whatever, it's, that's, I guess, a reasonable way as any to, to, huh. to separate them. Liberals were more likely to use individual words like I or me. Republicans were more likely to use words like we or us. Uh, so that the, the thinking there is – the, the researchers said that what they found was exactly what they predicted based upon really? previous research profiles of conservatives and liberals. Liberals tend to be more comfortable with their individuality whereas Mm. conservatives tend to be more sort of community-oriented, so Uh, they'll be more likely to use words like we and our.
4: Sort of makes sense. Yeah, liberals,
1: for that
3: reason, they're all. conservatives champion individuality over community or communism. Yes, but by definition,
4: conservatism is conserving the norm, and progressivism is trying to. Seek change, yeah. and I think that yeah. sometimes Concer- that ha- you have to right, be a right. little bit more individualistic to do that. Yeah, sure, I think that's
3: sure. Right, exactly. But in, sure. In, the, in the in the right, libertarians more align themselves, I think, with conservatives. Now, liberal both—it's yeah. so it's, it's, it's a it's a bit murky there. Both
1: sides were more likely to reference politicians in the opposite camp. So Republicans were more likely to talk about Barack Obama, Harry Reid, and Nancy Pelosi, while liberals were more likely to talk about Dick Cheney.
4: I love it. Yeah. So, the, so basically, everyone's yeah. angry. People talk about who they don't like, <laughs> oh, apparently.
1: Yeah. That's politics. Right. Yep. That's politics. There you go. Very interesting. All right. All of that means that a new comparison finds that students taking interactive online learning courses learn six times more per unit of study than traditional online lectures. That is science. Massive open online course or MMO, MOOC providers um, offer thousands of courses online. Uh, But there's also an initiative called the Open Learning Initiative, or OLI, which is uh, more interactive. It's designed to mimic an intelligent tutor. So it because it's interactive, it responds to what the learner is doing and and tries to individualize the experience for them. This is at a a psychology course, and they actually had – it's the same course, but they offered – the more traditional lecture version versus the interactive version. 18,645 students took the lecture only version, while 9,075 took the combined lecture and interactive version. There were 11 weekly quizzes and a final exam. The lecture only students averaged 57% on the final exam, which doesn't sound very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, the interactive students averaged 66%, so there was a you know, statistically significant difference there, which held up when you tried to control for obvious variables. But when they looked at the response to like, individual learning units, they found that you know, spending a, the, the same amount of time with the interactive course, uh, students um, learned six, t- six times more than those who just watched a video, watched a lecture.
4: Makes sense. I mean it kind yeah. of seems to go hand in hand with what a lot of research is yeah. showing lately.
1: The more interactive uh the experience. So and this is the this is the new focus in learning. I think we touched upon this recently on the show, in fact. Learning the learning experience should encourage even for students to think, to actively use their knowledge. Uh and just passively receiving knowledge, that's the old way, right? That just doesn't work as well. All right. Well, good job, Kara.
2: Yeah, oh, nice thanks. job. Way to sniff it out. Way to Don't get it out. cocky. <laughs>
1: good I job, can't kid. Help Don't it. get cocky. That's a Star job, Wars,
4: job. that's a New Star woman, Wars
1: quote, here. All oh, right.
2: Yeah. Evan,
4: yeah, right there, you just humbled me. Evan, <laughs> before we go
1: to your quote, we have a quick announcement. The 31st consecutive Australian Skeptics National Convention will take place at Gardens Theater in Brisbane, right? Bob, not Brisbane, yes, but you Brisbane. You are correct, sir. October 16th to 18th. 2015. Uh, They have a very impressive lineup of speakers. Their keynote is Brian Schmidt, who's an astrophysicist, but also Joe Nickel, our good friend, Eugenie Scott, Susan Gerbic, Miles Powers, James Coyne, and a long list of other speakers, uh, including all of our Australian skeptical friends. So, if you're going to be in the area, if you're going to be in Brisbane, go to the Australian Skeptics National Convention.
4: Or make a special trip.
1: It's a bit of a long trip, depending on where you live, but yeah. yeah,
4: so worth it.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah, we've been there twice. We've done it twice,
3: and we'll go again. I hope so. All right, Ev, give us a quote. All right, this comes to us from the TV show Sleepy Hollow, which really? is a what the hell is Sleepy Hollow? <laughs> Sleepy <laughs> Hollow, <laughs> an American supernatural drama television series. Yeah, I saw the first season. I actually liked it. Did yeah, you? I haven't seen it. It's yet. all right.
4: Is Ichabod Crane. It's Ichabod Crane. It? Ichabod Crane
1: <laughs> is a revolutionary soldier who put you know put asleep, or I think he's actually killed, revived. In modern times, and then he's got to uncover a plot to destroy the world. You know, it's right, so it's based on a true story. Totally supernatural, <laughs> but it is interesting that to, to make Ichabod Crane, you know, a, a contemporary character. Yeah,
3: one of the characters in the show is Captain Frank Irving, played by the actor Orlando Jones. And here's what he said in one episode: "You know, there are two things in life I believe a person should hold on to for as long as possible: virginity and skepticism." Surprisingly, I already lost the first thing, so I'm going to hold on for the second one as long as possible. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on to
1: your skepticism.
3: (laughs) Hold on to your skepticism. You might lose your virginity, just don't lose your skepticism, please.
1: Those two things might be related too. If you hold on to your skepticism, it just might help you hold on to the first (laughs) one. But
4: I'd say, I'd say, better to lose them in that order.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> right. Oh, and that was sent in by uh, listener Brad. Brad from Sydney, Australia provided that for this thank week. Thank you, so Brad. So thank you, Brad. All right. We appreciate well, it. Well,
1: thank you guys for joining me this week.
2: You're welcome, Steve. Thank you. Nice yeah.
1: Thanks, Doc. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info@theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.